0: His name is Dean. Uh, he's written a book. It was given to me by John Fager. I don't think he's here today, but uh, he gave me this book. It's uh, The Ultra Marathon Man Confessions of an All Night Runner. And I'm about halfway through the book. And I've read uh, Dean's first ultra marathon race. It's called the Western States Endurance Run, it's a 100 mile race probably at least 24 hours of running, maybe less, but probably more than that, the conditions. Bone-chilling cold. Blistering heat and sun. Temperatures ranging anywhere from 38 degrees to 101 degrees, all in the span of this race. He has to cross rivers. He has to go through elevation changes. We're talking thousands of feet changes in elevation during this race. His footing would be a mixture of loose rock, melting snow, and thick mud. First five miles, he takes off, and it's almost straight uphill. Sometimes he's almost on all fours, crawling up this hill. He gets to the top of the first peak, takes time to admire the view. A fellow runner, a veteran who's been there and done this, points to a mountain. It's about 20 miles away. He said, that's where we're going next. (laughs) And the finish line is just 75 miles beyond that. (laughs) He's nearing the halfway point. Blisters, weight loss, dehydration, slurred speech. And this is how he, in his own word, describes the checkpoint near the halfway point. Motionless runners lay strewn about the place, like a scene from an old war movie. (laughs) One in which the enemy is winning. He had been told that the first 50 miles of this race were run with your legs, and the last 50 miles were run with your mind. He continued on. 62 miles into this thing, a word comes to his mind, fear, Fear, he says, I thought to myself, just another four-letter word. But now, as great an adversary as any mountain left before me, fear. Continuing on, mile after mile after mile, night blindness. I didn't even know there was such a thing, but there's night blindness, muscle spasms, Muscle destruction. That just doesn't sound good. Muscle destruction. Mosquito bites. I'll fall down a steep embankment. And then he gets lost and has to backtrack. He's almost hit by a car because he's laying in the middle of the road because he's so tired. <laughs> and then he gets, he's nearing, he's approaching the finish line. Mile 99, he comes up, and this is how it reads. The final climb to Roby Point was terrible. My remaining water was consumed early in the ascent, leaving me dry. I marched wearily upwards, stumbling frequently. Again, he's going up a hill. My hands were cut. My arms and legs were bruised and scraped. After I had contended with this beastly climb for about as long as my body could hold up, the lights of Roby Point finally came into view. I was coated in dirt and drooling on myself as I covered the last few feet of approach. My eyes were nearly shut. All I could see was the ground a few feet in front of me. He's 20 hours into this thing. A man stood there with a record log. When he saw me, he dropped the clipboard and ran over to help. I crumpled into his outstretched arms, and he slowly, slowly lowered my body to the ground. He was talking to me, almost yelling, but I was fading in and out and couldn't comprehend a word. Then another face appeared above me. It was oddly familiar. Dad! My God, son, he replied gravely, what's happened to you? (laughs) He knelt down beside me and took my head in his hands. There were tears streaming down his cheeks. He cradled my body gently as though trying to protect any last bits of life that were still left inside. Where's mom, I whispered. I don't want her to see me like this. My father choked back tears. Don't worry, son, she's waiting at the finish line. Dad, I said weakly, I'm not sure what to do at this point. I can barely move. Son, he said resolutely, if you can't run, then walk. And if you can't walk, then crawl. Do what you have to do. Just keep moving forward and never, ever give up. He closed his eyes and held me tightly. I reached up and put my hand on his shoulder. I will, Dad, I muttered. I won't give up. He loosened his hold, and I rolled onto my stomach. I got my arms and legs in in place and then simply followed his instructions. I began crawling up the road. I could hear Dad trying to control his crying as I dragged my body off into the distance. We're continuing on in our series called A Church on Fire. It's a study of the book of Acts, and we're looking at different apostles and their journey, and the journey of the early church, and uh, poor Roger Messner, he was listening to one of my, my past sermons, and he only made it halfway through, and I said, well, why is that? And he said, it seems like you guys keep preaching the same thing, and so I'm going to try and uh, bore Roger to tears this morning, but we're going to look at Paul, and guess what? He's going through suffering, and he's going to go through trials, and that's, that's what we're going we're to hear about this morning, and so I'll try and keep you guys away, keep him away from the balcony so he doesn't fall off, and... Uh, Will you pray with me as we get started? God, I thank you for your word spoken through Hamlet and the different songs that we uh, were able to sing and worship to you this morning. And God, would we help us to never tire of the message of love that is presented through Jesus Christ, your son, that you loved us so much that you sent him to die for us grip us with that in our hearts in our minds so that when we encounter trial and fear tries to grip our lives and paralyze us, that we'd look to you. We'd seek refuge in you. Teach us now through your Holy Spirit and through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're looking at chapter 22, beginning in verse 22, and it goes this way. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Stop right there. What did he just get done saying? He had basically just shared his story to the crowd, and he got to this line. The Lord had said to me, Paul speaking, the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then they said, stop right there. They refused to listen to him when he said that. And it goes back to what I talked about two weeks ago, that they, the, the Jews at that time envisioned that their family was exclusive, that certain people weren't allowed. And if they were going to be allowed, then they followed the rules of the day, of the custom of that people. And at this point, Paul had been told by the Lord to go to these peoples and say, it's not about that, it's about Christ. And these people listened to him up until a point, and then they said, no, 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 that's not how we do it, that's not how we've done it, forget it. And they wouldn't listen to him. Continuing on, then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks, flinging dust in the air. Throwing off their cloaks. What, what is this? I, I don't know if we have a modern day equivalent. You know, when you watch like the State of the Union address, if somebody's opposed to what the president's saying, they just don't stand up and applaud. <laughs> there's no flinging of dust, there's no throwing off cloaks. But these guys are intense and they are serious about ridding the earth of Paul. They want him dead. There's no time for discussion, they want it over. They're ready to see him die. I was thinking maybe we could do this on one of Steve's first weeks back. We could just bring a bunch of dirt and just fling it in the air and be like, what is going on in here? (laughs) But they're intense and they want him done with. Continuing on. He, the commander, directed that Paul be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Poor commander. How'd he get involved in this mess? He was just sitting in his great leadership chair And then he hears about this ruckus and he's got to come down because he just wants peace in this place. That's all he's looking for. And he's still trying to get to the bottom of it. All this time he's been been trying to do that. And so he says, I want Paul flogged. I want him questioned. I got to figure out why this guy is such a lightning rod for chaos. Verse 25, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you To flog me, a Roman citizen, who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. Paul responds, but I was born a citizen. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. What's the big deal here? He kind of just, oh, by the way, didn't you know I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen? Why does that have any significance? Well... Roman citizens are protected by this set of laws called the Valerian and Portion laws. I don't know much about it, but that's the great big title that's given to it. And by law, they are protected from certain forms of punishment. And even though he wasn't convicted of anything, even when they tried to figure out and question him, this isn't allowed. This flogging, this kind of interrogation isn't allowed for Roman citizens. Even the chains that he was wearing shouldn't have happened. As a Roman citizen, he was protected from that. And it's, so, it's such a big-time thing that this commander could actually lose all of his military significance, his prestige, his position. He could lose that and even face death because of how he's just treated Paul. So this is very significant that Paul brings this up. And it's not likely in this time that Paul would have lied to him. He doesn't have his like, little license that he can pull out and be like, hey, This is my Roman citizen's license. They don't have that. But if he would have lied about it, he could risk death. So it's not likely that he would have just off the cuff shared that he was a Roman citizen. He was born a Roman citizen. This just means that his dad, in some form or fashion or his grandfather, had gained Roman citizenship either through working for for a, a Roman general or administrator or possibly some other way he gained Roman citizenship. So he, Paul was born into citizenship. The commander, that's not the case. And as, a, as, a, as, as this guy, as we'll come to find out, you want to be, if you're, if you're kind of in this Roman occupied area, you want to be a citizen, because the other two options are you can be an alien, labeled an alien, or you can be labeled a slave. I don't want to be that, so I want to be a citizen. And the only way to do that, if you're outside of that, is to bribe certain officials. And then you're put on this list and included in citizenship. And so this commander had wealth and influence to be able to do that. The question becomes, why did Paul choose to reveal his citizenship? Why did he do that? Why did he choose to all of a sudden say, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. The difficulty becomes when you, when you look back at, at Acts 16.22, At that point, back in the story, he was in Philippi, and he allows himself to be beaten by Roman guards. He allows himself in that situation to be beaten, but over here, he says, no, 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 I'm a Roman citizen, you can't do this, this isn't right. And so why? Why the difference between the two? There are a couple different theories. It could be because he was in Philippi, trying to minister there, and he didn't want to employ his citizenship because he knew that the Gentiles there couldn't do that. They wouldn't have that same benefit. And so maybe he's just saying, I'm going to live like they're living. I'm not going to say that I'm a Roman citizen. I'm just going to take the beating here. Could be that. It could be the fact that this punishment was a lot less severe. This was just rods. You're just getting beaten with rods. Big deal. Well, that's pretty big deal. Over here, he was going to get whipped with what's called a flagellum, the same thing that Jesus whipped with, severe much more severe punishment that that the commander was going to present to him. Could be be either of those, could be both. It could be that he wanted to bless the commander um, and just so that he was aware. It could be self-preservation, could be an option that, that Paul had there. It could be because in this situation he saw a reason for enduring that beating and over here he didn't see that. It kind of goes back to what I was saying about not enduring hardship just to endure hardship. He didn't, maybe he didn't find a purpose, a reason for that. We just don't know. Hamlet and I were talking over the passage, and we were looking for, like, what's, what's his motive? What's his driving force? And we're just like, it's not clear. It's not clear. But he didn't get beaten, so maybe things are looking up for old Paul. All right? All right, good. Continuing on. Verse 30, the next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he's still trying to get at this. He released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. He's still trying to get to the bottom of this, this poor commander. And so he he gathers the Sanhedrin together. They're the experts on on the Jewish law. They should be able to take care of this thing. Chapter 23, verse 1, Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin And said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, at those words, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed tomb, your whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Uh Uh-oh, here comes trouble. Here comes trouble. He uses the words my brothers initially, which would kind of hopefully get him on good rapport because this was the Sanhedrin, these were the Jewish leaders, these were the big elite. Paul was a part of that before coming to Christ. And so what he's looking around, he's seeing familiar faces. So he addresses them as brothers, hopefully to get on an equal footing with them. But then the next words out of his mouth are considered blasphemous by the high priest. That he has fulfilled his duty to God in all good conscience to this day. High priest, and what he knows, he's saying, no, 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 forget it. Orders that he struck Paul says, well, that's not right. You can't do that. That's that's against our law. And so he calls him on it, and that just gets him in deeper water. Paul momentarily forgets Exodus 22, verse 28. It reads this way. It states that the law of Moses forbids in Israel to revile a ruler of his people. So he calls the high priest on it. But then in doing so, he becomes in the wrong, disrespecting the high priest. It's more likely that he didn't necessarily forget Exodus uh, 22, verse 28. It's much more likely that Paul's just been out traveling. He's been going on missionary journey after missionary journey. And this gathering of the Sanhedrin was pretty informal. No big robes to display, hey, I'm, I'm high priest, you know? And so it's quite likely that he just didn't know that this guy out of of this whole group was the high priest that he was talking to. But then his recognition of the law would display some sort of form of repentance. He knew what Exodus 22, 28 said. Continuing on. Keeps getting murkier here. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope And the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees, they acknowledge them all, each of those things. Verse 9, there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and to bring him into the barracks. So the commander is sitting on the side hoping it's going to get done via the Sanhedrin. Out of luck. Out of luck. Problem not solved. This is the fifth time that the Sanhedrin has heard about the claims of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. One time, it's Jesus, Mark 14, we're not going to look at it. Peter and John in Acts 4. The arrest of all the apostles, Acts 5. And Stephen, Acts 6. And now Paul's account. And if you go back and you look through that list, many of them are dead because they've followed the claims of Christ believed in the resurrection of the dead. And now he's got the Sanhedrin up in arms and a big target's been placed on his back. Why did he choose to bring this up? Here's the Sanhedrin, powerful officials. Where's that big evangelistic effort? Where's him telling his story about what God has called him to do? He doesn't do that. Go straight for the resurrection of the dead, knowing That that's just going to cause an immediate divide of the assembly. Why does he do that? Was it to take the focus off himself? Maybe. Was he hoping that that might preserve his life? Could be. Was this his best attempt to confront the group where they were at? We just don't know. Hamlet and I, we, we talked about. His motives are just unknown at this point. We don't know what he's doing, why he's doing what he's doing. So we got to continue on. Keep looking at the text. Verse 11 The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Take courage. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Of all the things in these different passages that we've looked at that we don't know, one thing we do know is that Paul needed to hear from the Lord take courage. In some form or fashion, Paul was fearful fearful of his life, fearful of ministry, fearful of what might be next. And the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage, take courage. In the Greek, this word is tharse, not a big deal. You'll never remember that. Uh, but it, this is what it communicates. Be firm or be resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. Seems like a good word for Paul, huh? Be firm or be resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. That's what he's in. Whether he's in front of the crowd, whether he's getting ready to be beaten, flogged, whether he's in front of the sadhedron, he's facing adverse circumstances. He's facing danger. This word tharse, we, we translated take courage, um, is used just a handful of times, just like five times in the New Testament. And one of them, all of them except one is, is spoken by Jesus. And we're going to look at a couple of those right now. Matthew 9, verse 2. Some men brought to Jesus a paralytic, lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Tharse, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Another one, Matthew 9, 20-22. Just then a woman who had been subject to a bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I could only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. He said, Tharse, take courage, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. Taking extreme risk. Surely she was fearful of what could happen to her. Here she was, a woman, subject to bleeding, 12 years. Unclean by the standards of that day. Reaching out. Her touching something that's clean would make that unclean, typically. Except in this case, she's touching Christ. Christ is able to clean her cleanse her, not only from her bleeding condition, but spiritually, and in the midst of her fear coming to him, he says, no, no, take courage. Take courage. Be encouraged. Do not be frightened. Do not be fearful. Two parallel passages of the same story, Matthew 14, verses 26 and 27, and Mark 6, verse fifty. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the lake, they were terrified, fearful. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. And the money passed. I just love it. John 16, Jesus speaking. I have told you these things, all the things, all this teaching, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but tharse." Take courage. I have overcome the world. You're going to have trouble. But take courage. I have overcome the world. And in me, you may have peace. I don't know what you're facing here this morning. Uh, We all have a a different story. We all have different family, different work history, um, different places of life. I don't know where you're at. Um, But as I scan the communication cards and as I pray for us as a body, there are a lot of people in adverse circumstances. Tough, tough situations. Some of you, and I'm not getting specific, some of you are facing unemployment and you're looking for a job. You're like Dean was at mile 62 and you're just gripped with fear. Fear. It is the biggest adversary you have right now. You're concerned about your finances, how you're going to pay the bills, how you can provide for housing. And way off in the distance, miles away, is a job waiting for you. And that's where you're going. But you have to traverse the job search process to get there. And Jesus' words to you would be, take courage. Have peace in me. I've overcome the world. Some of you are getting married. Just talk to my old buddy, Dave. Getting married soon. Many of you are in that situation. You're going to be getting married soon. And you may be struggling with fear of the unknown. That you're going to join yourself together with this person. What's fearful about that? Well, you don't know how you're going to be in 25 years. It can grip you. Take courage. Take courage, not in the circumstances, not in your spouse. Take courage in Christ. Some of you want to be married. You want to be married. You want to have that relationship, that closeness, that intimacy. You long for that. And there's a fear that, that what if it doesn't happen? What if the right person doesn't come along? I talked to Steve, and Steve says that this is one of the biggest things that knocks people out of the Christian race, uniting yourself with somebody that's not a follower of Christ. He says it knocks more people out of the Christian race than anything he's experienced so far. Out of fear, people latch on with somebody that they don't know that well. They don't know what they're all about. Fear causes them to jump into a relationship because they crave that intimacy, If you're in that situation, and many of you are, I want you to take courage. Take courage. Lean into Jesus in this time. Many of you are wondering what you want as far as your church home and your family. Do I want to be a part of hope? Is this God's place for me? The fear of of being known by a community of people. And just so you know, we're all messed up. We all got stuff, you know, you can just add, add to the heap of stuff we already got piled up. We want you to know, don't let fear paralyze you in becoming involved at Hope and being a part of this family. Maybe it's not you. Maybe it's the person next to you that's fearful. Maybe it's your children. Maybe you fear for your children because they're going through something. And I fear for my child. I'm, Drew, he's like, he's like 20 months old. I'm just like, I fear he's never going to learn obedience. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> come on, Drew, you got this. You know this. <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe it's not you. But the odds are maybe the, the person next to you or somebody in the pew you're sitting with is struggling. Don't let fear paralyze you. Uh, I want to I be like, uh, like Dean's dad was for him. If you're in a situation where you can't run, walk. And if you can't walk, crawl. Keep going forward. I was talking to Dave Sulek, and he's, he knows of a study where they, they did a uh, looked at the Bible, 100 people, and I think it was 55 of them didn't finish well. I think that was the number. 55 of 100 people in the Bible didn't finish well And there's a number of reasons for that, but don't let fear be one of the reasons that you don't finish well in your your walk with God. The great thing about this is you don't have to do it alone. Okay, You do not have to do it alone. Paul wasn't alone. He had Christ right there calling him to to take courage. And we're going to have people up front after the service, and if you're facing something, whatever it is, it might be one of the things I touched on, it might not It might not be, but come forward. I'll be up front. We'll have people praying. If you want to talk to Pastor Hamlet too, he's available. You are not alone. We are here with you. And we will help point you to Christ. So that just like Dean in this endurance race, just like Paul when he gets near the end of his life, said, I finished well. Came through all that junk and he finished well and that's our hope for you and for this church will you pray with me God I'm drawn to um, people like this ultra marathon man uh, testing the limits of human endurance and Paul and in, in much the same way as being tested, physically fearful that his life might be taken from him, that he had run his race in vain. And then you showed up, very simply telling him, take courage, not in circumstances, not in other people, Have peace in the Lord. Take courage in the Lord, for he has overcome this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.